Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture reading is Book of John, chapter 3, verses 34 through 36. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. Father loves the Son, has given all things to his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Good morning to you. It is a magnificent thing that you and I can be Christians and that we can assemble as we're doing today. The history that brings us to this point is dramatic, sometimes incredible and awesome, sometimes fearsome. When you think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the promise made to them that through their seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. That was a rocky road. There will be times in Old Testament history with their descendants, and the only reason God put up with them was because of that vow, the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You have the 400 years of Egypt, the iron furnace, slavery, and God delivers Israel from the Hebrews from that, with mighty plagues on the Egyptians. And he takes them across the Red Sea on dry ground. But the fact of the matter was, after giving them the law, Mount Sinai, it was clear. They didn't have the faith to to see this through. And so he purged Israel with the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And he raised up a new generation, a new generation to go into the promised land, the inherited land, which is Canaan. And he prepared them for it. it. Now, the purpose was twofold. It was to give them the land, their inheritance, but it was also to drive out the Canaanite because they were a pagan people. Now, mind you, those people still belong to God just like anybody else. God made them too. But they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They wanted nothing to do with Jehovah. They had their own gods. They created their own gods. And so there was a... It was a cleaning out, if you please, of the land of Canaan. And that's what Israel was to do. And God said, now you go in there and you just run them out. I want you to, to burn their idols. I want you to tear down those altars to, the, to, the, to their gods. And I want you to run them out of there. And I'm warning you, Israel, I'm warning you, don't make covenants with them. Don't give your daughters to marry their sons and vice versa. Don't you do that. Don't you be worshiping their gods. I want you to get rid of their gods. They're pagan people. And they have completely, completely, utterly abandoned God. And it is on this basis that God sends the people of Israel over the Jordan River, again now on dry ground, into Canaan. I want to teach you a new word, or at least I think so, today. 
It's a word that I only recently learned myself. It's a Bible word. Oh, my, I've, I've read it many times. I just never had noticed it before until I was preparing this lesson. But we need it. We need this word. And the word is bochum. B-O-C-H-I-M. Bochum. Now, bochum is only found in one chapter of the Bible. It's Judges chapter 2. And, and I'll show you that. But first I need to set the stage for where we're going. And, and then we're going to introduce the word Bochum. So I'm going to go and I'm going to read some scriptures to you to prepare you for, for this lesson. So here we go. Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 28. I'll give you time to turn. I'm going to read two or three passages. So get your Bibles and let's do a little reading. Exodus 23, verse 28. And I will send hornets before you. This is the people of God coming into the land of Canaan. I don't know what the hornets were. I doubt it was literal hornets. It means, the word means stingers. It means that I'm going to, I'm going to go and fight these battles for you. I will work with you. I'm delivering the Canaanite people into your hand. You won't lose because I'm going to be with you. You be faithful to me. You walk with me and you won't lose. I'm going to go with you and we'll clean up this land. I'll send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, Canaanite, Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, from the desert to the river, For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now turn over to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, I want to begin with verse 11. We're preparing our minds for the word bokum. This is in preparation for going into the land of Canaan. Now I'm Exodus 34, verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillows, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. Those are the warnings. Now to Psalm 106. This is going to be David looking back on how this thing played out. So you have the warnings now. You're coming into the land of Canaan, and and I won't rehearse it, but you get the point. Very clear, very, very strong, clear commandments. Now here's Psalm 106. Here's how this thing played out. I'm in verse 34, Psalm 106, verse 34. David looks back on it now in history and says this. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them But they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, 
and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people, so that he abhorred his own inheritance. And he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection and under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Now, go with me to Judges chapter 1, and I want to show you the word bokum. In chapter 1, you have a rehearsal of what happened. When they got into Canaan, the instructions had been clear and abundant, repetitive, but they didn't do it. So when you get to 27, however Manasseh, I'm in Judges 1, 27, however Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshin and its villages, 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. 30, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants. 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants. 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants. And then chapter 2 and verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bokan. There's the word. It's only two times in the Bible. It's here in verse 1, and it's in verse 5, the only times. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. But they shall be your thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people, the children of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed to the Lord. Now, I want you to, um, I want you to look at this next slide. Gilgal to Bochum. This is pure symbolism. It says that the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochum. It's not about God, God traveling from one town to another. It's something much bigger than that. Now, when I say Gilgal to you, perhaps your mind goes back to where Gilgal is. Gilgal is, is the land where Israel's feet stood when they crossed over the Jordan River to come into Canaan. The, so just like the Red Sea, the waters open up and it's dry land and they go over. That's Gilgal on the other side. And so oh, well, you, well, you can see over there, there's Jericho right over there, see? So here's Canaan land. Now, God said, I want the one representative of each of the 12 tribes to go into the dry bed of the Jordan River and get a stone, a stone that he would carry on his shoulder. And then I want you to come over onto the bank in Gilgal, and I want you to stack the stones so that when your children ask, what is this memorial, you'll say, well, let me tell you about what God did. Let me tell you about the covenant. Let me tell you about the promise. Let me tell you about the promised land that God has now given us because of his vow to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's what this memorial is. Now, that is in Gilgal. That's Gilgal. So, For our lesson, I want you to let that word Gilgal from Judges 2 and verse 1 represent the promise. 
the covenant that God made with Israel. But the Bible says that God went from Gilgal to Bochum. Now, here's the definition of the word Bochum. It means weeping. Bochum means weeping. So you have this statement in verse 1, from Gilgal, God went from Gilgal, the covenant, the promise, to Bochum. And then it says, they named that place Bochum. The point is that verse 1 is saying, this is symbolic, it is saying, he went from, we have a covenant with each other, to you have destroyed this covenant, and I'm going to bring you to weeping. I'm going to bring you to weeping. Now, here's point number three. God's always warned of Bochum. This lesson is about the wrath of God. That is representative of what's going to happen in the book of Judges. And perhaps you're familiar with Judges. It is cyclical. It is that, and it lasted 300 years, give or take. And so it's a long time. So the people of Israel would go into this Canaan. They would get into this culture. and They didn't run the people out. They didn't do any of that stuff as they should. And they, they start letting their daughters marry those boys. And the boys marry those daughters. And now we got grandchildren who are worshiping idols. What are you going to do about that, Papa? Hmm? They get so interwoven and they forsake the Almighty God. I mean, they get, they, they're, they're saturated. Israel's saturated with these idols. And they invoke the wrath of God. Now, the book of Judges is that God would send them a deliverer. They'd cry out to God, finally, deliver us. And God would send a deliverer, and those are the judges, deliver them. And so for a period of time, they would be faithful, and then they'd go right back to it. They'd go, they, it wouldn't be long, and they'd go right back to their, their wicked idolatry. And God would send Bochum. The Bochum was the wrath of God. The Bochum was the rage and anger of God. So let, let's go now to the book of Proverbs chapter 1. I just I want to read a couple of passages to, to let you know that God has always, and I'm talking about Old Testament, New Testament too, it's true in our time. Isn't it, is it true in our time that God warns of Bochum? Is it? I mean, Jude 22 and 23, this is about evangelism and you teach other people. And, and some, with some, save with compassion. Others safe with fear, pulling them out of the fire. What's that, Bochum? It is to say, let me tell you about God's wrath. There's a warning of God's wrath. Now, I want us to swim in some waters now that are going to be tough to, to think about. But we're going to do it. We've got to do this. These are passages. I'm going to read a couple of them, and one of them is rather lengthy. To, to make sure that everybody in this room has familiarity with the degree to which God is uh, angry with his people when they are like what Israel was. He would save them, and then they'd go right back to those idols. It wouldn't be very long. He'd, he would rescue them again, and that's the book of Judges. And it happens over and over again until, ladies and gentlemen, God sometimes has enough. It's enough. And that's the word bokum. All right, here's Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 25. But you have said it not, all my counsel. This is God's words. These are God's words. And would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. 
When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish comes upon you. Listen closely. Then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they, for that they hated knowledge, they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. I've had enough. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. I want to read now from Leviticus 26. Leviticus chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, and if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant... Do you think that still describes some folks today? Do you think it does? Well, that's, of course it does. Of course it does. Do you think that God has any less wrath on these circumstances than he ever did? The answer is no. No, he doesn't. 16, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting, <clears throat> excuse me, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. That sounds a whole lot like the time of the judges. Remember Gideon? I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. You know, the word seven means completion a fullness. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its produce. Nor nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me. I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I also will send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children. Destroy your livestock and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me. See, this is the book of Judges. That's what happened. Then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. I'll bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you're gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy." When I've cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after this, after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I'll bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste." And uh, I won't go on, but you get the point. 
and it's important that you, you and I get this point, it is that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. And going from Gilgal to Bochum means I have a covenant with you. You walk with me and I will deliver you. I will bless you and care for you. But, but if you do not, and that's what, that's what happened. They didn't. And he went from Gilgal to Bochum. And Bochum is the weeping that comes as a result of the wrath of God. Now, here's number four. There's a great danger of pulpits avoiding Bochum. And I think, that, I think that in our day and time, this is a very common thing. We don't, we don't really want to talk about hell. Mind you, I don't enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to do. And perhaps preachers and teachers commonly think, well, people, that's trite. People know this already. And why should we rub it in? I don't think we need to talk about it. And the wrath of God. It's just not how we represent things. We don't represent sometimes a balanced perspective because we'd much rather present John 10 and verse 10, which is true. The thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, to destroy. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And so what, what we would rather is to take the position or the posture, and I'm talking about, I think, Christendom in general, and I'm painting with a broad brush, but... It's much easier to take the posture today in pulpits that, that the motivation that you have to be a Christian is that it will enhance the quality of your life. God will bless you and it will make your life lots better if you will be a Christian. Is that a true statement? Well, yes. I mean, your life, I, I, I wouldn't trade the Christian life for anything. The problem with that is that you be a Christian and every day is not going to be good. And Calvin came along, John Calvin, and he said, now, once, you, once you're saved, why, well, you cannot be lost. This, these teachings that we've been reading from the Old Testament about Israel deny that. And when you come to the New Testament, Galatians 5 and verse 4 deny that. Of course, we could live in such a way as to be lost and to excite, excite the wrath of God. Do we preach it? Do we say it? I don't think we should preach it every Sunday, but that's not the question. Do we say it? A friend of mine who preaches for a, a, a good church, I, I've always thought it was a good church, was asked by another friend of mine recently, how long has it been since you preached on church discipline? And he'd been there many years, and he thought a minute, and he said, I never have. I want you to listen closely. The reason why this is so dangerous and it's so important to preach Bochum and to make us aware of it is that we do not treasure grace and mercy of God if we don't fear the wrath of God. It's a necessary ingredient. Take two illustrations. Man's flying on an airplane. A lot of other... A lot of other passengers on the airplane, and the attendant comes to him and says, Sir, I have a parachute I would like for you to wear, and it will make your flight so much more pleasant, and it will enhance the quality of your experience flying today. So would you put the parachute on, please? He doesn't know. I doesn't know how that can be, but after all, she is the professional, and so he puts the parachute on, and she helps him, and it's rather cumbersome and difficult, and he gets it all strapped and buckled, 
And so then he sits there and he's flying on the plane. But the problem is that this parachute has a thing on the back and, and it makes his, his back kind of hurt. Okay, we'll give it a little more time though because she said it will enhance the quality of my flight. And then in a few minutes, she doesn't mean to, but she walks up and she spills hot coffee on him. And because of the parachute, he can't even reach the places that are hurting really bad right now. But it isn't just that. In a few minutes, while they're, they're, they're people, some of the people are staring at him because he looks kind of funny with that big bulky thing. And his chest is pressed against the tray in front of him. And there, there are a couple of, 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 of people that snicker and point. And you know what he does, of course. He reaches up and he unbuckles the parachute. And he pulls it off and he throws it to the ground. And by the way, what does he think about that attendant? And she, she lied to me. This is, not, this is not pleasant. I do not think it enhances my flight. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. And I don't, I'd just soon stay away from her. And I'll tell you something else too. After he gets off that plane, when he sits around with friends, he's going to do something like this. He's going to say, let me tell you about this airline I was on and about this attendant. And let me tell you what they did. And I want nothing to do with that anymore. That was nuts. Okay, hold that. Hold that. Back up. Let's go at it again. Same illustration, but a couple of other points. Let's just tweak it. And so he's, he's flying on this airplane, and, and in a few minutes, the attendant comes up to him with this parachute and says, Sir, this, this, air, this airplane has two engines. One of them is irreparably harmed. It will not run again. For the other one, we have 8.7 minutes of fuel left. And that's not far, and that's not enough to get us to the next airport. We are going to crash within about 10 minutes. This plane's going down. I found this parachute, and I want you to put it on. You will have a chance to to jump, you'll have a chance to bail, you'll be safe, and you can, you can be back with your family again. Please put it on. And he puts it on. And by the way, it's bulky, and in the back it makes his back hurt. Is he going to take it off? I said, will he take it off? No, he, he's, no, no. And in a few minutes, the, the attendant comes by, and of course she's nervous and jittery, and, and she spills hot coffee on him. And so does he take it off? And the answer is, of course he does not take it off. Why would he do that? Because his wearing it has nothing to do with his comfort. And some people start laughing at him and pointing, and people look at him because he's kind of funny looking with the parachute on. Is he going to take it off? And the answer is, of course he's not going to take it off because wearing it has nothing to do with them. It's not about that. Take another illustration. Two neighbors meet at the fence. Two women. And one of them says to the other, I, I, I've got these, this bottle of pills, and I want, you to, I want you to take them. They're very expensive, and I mortgaged my house, and please take them. How's the other one going to feel? Well, <laughs> I, I think that she's going to think that her neighbor is a little crazy. I mean, you mortgaged your house? I feel fine. I, I don't even know what you're talking about, and I'm certainly not going to put one of these pills in my mouth. I don't know what this is. Okay, stop. Back up. Let's go at it again. Tweak it. The neighbor comes to her neighbor and she says, you know that I'm a physician assistant. I study medicine. I've witnessed two or three times in my life 
people with this particular disease. And she names the disease. I'm familiar with it. There are seven, there's seven, um, seven things that people have, that symptoms that people have that have this disease. It's a terrible disease. And I've, I've affirmed by watching you that you have six of them. And I really suspect you have seven. Now, once diagnosed at this level, a person has at most six months to live. But the last three months of that, when this, the, the pain comes on, it's going to be a horrific death. It will be horrific. I don't want you to die. So the medicine is very effective. It'll make you better. It will. It works. It's very, very effective. But it's very expensive. And so I, I mortgaged my house in order to buy it. And, and this is it. Please take it. Now, what I think realistically is, is that the neighbor is, is not going to pop the pill in the mouth. What she's going to say is, in her heart, I need to check this out. I feel fine. I'm going to figure this out. But she's going to check out this disease. And you think she's going to wait till tomorrow? No, she's going to do that today. She wants to find out if, if she really does have this. She'll search this out, and then she's going to take that medicine. Let me ask you a question. What does she think about the person who gave her the pills? Who knew this crazy woman who mortgaged her house? What does she think about her now? And so what we do, I'm just saying that if we're not careful, what we'll, we'll do in our pulpits is that we will approach people and say, you need to be a Christian because Jesus died for you, and it'll, it'll enhance the quality of your life. You'll have so much better life, and that's why you need to do this. And we, we teach this, but we pull back about Bochum, about the wrath of God. What is it that God's looking for? Here's the last point, and then I'm going to stop. What's he looking for? When you get to the book of Judges, now you see this, this repentance and, and then they go back into idolatry, and it just, it's, it's cyclical. It makes a cycle. And God will say, okay, I, I'm done with you. You get to chapter 10, for example. I'm done with you. I've had enough of this. And the answer is, you go, and I know you're suffering because of this oppression of your enemies, which I told you was going to happen. I warned you about this, but you didn't listen, and you wouldn't listen. And I think what you really need to do is to go onto your idols and cry out to them and let them come and fix this for you. Let them come and help you take care of this because I will not. I'm done. Bokum. Bokum. What's he looking for? And the answer is, in a word, contrition. Contrition. They would repent, and there was just this period of time in there when they would be faithful to God, and then they would go right back, and then they would repent again. He would bring on the oppression. He would let, them, let their enemies have them. He wouldn't protect them anymore, and th- they would go back into oppression, and then before long, they would repent again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, and, 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 but it wouldn't last, and God finally would say, I've, got, I've had enough. So, so here's a teenager who does commit some infraction, and his mom presses him about that. I'm going to punish you for that because that was wrong. And his response is, finally, after a long time, he finally responds by saying, okay, 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 I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, okay? And he's surprised when his mom still punishes him. What? What do you, what do you mean you're still going to... I can't go to the party. What, what do you mean? I mean, I said I didn't I say I was sorry? I said I was sorry. Yeah, but you, you understand that it's no good. Why not? Because it's missing something. What is that? The ingredient, the ingredient is contrition. It's about contrition. Now, contrition is a religious word. Contrition has synonyms like regret and remorse. But contrition gets all the way to the bottom of your heart. It's got to be that way. It's about God. It is about the realization that God is real, that God pays attention to my life. And I can't do this cyclical thing. I had a man contact me a couple of years ago and he said, and I I don't know that I even knew him. I, I don't remember that. But here was his question. He said, in my job, I'm about to retire, and I, it can't come soon enough. He said, in my job, I sin once a month. He, and, I, and it was about the books, and he had something, some connection to the, to the books. And, and he said, once a month, uh, my, my boss wants me to, and it's about cooking the books. It's about lying in the books and he knows it and it's just killing him because he's a part of this and he knows it's a sin he said so but I don't want to mess up my retirement I'm just about to retire if I could just get to that end and so I'm not going to quit can't quit my job so what what I've decided is that every month when I do this I ask God to forgive me and then I go back to work and this was his cycle and he said I just want some reassurance that you think I'm all right I'm not his judge. I said, but you're not all right. Because you cannot, you cannot repent while expecting to continue in the sin. It won't work like that. You've got to have the contrition. It's got to be a contrite spirit. Now, let me give you four times in the English Bible when you find the word contrite. Drink it in. Four times. Isaiah 57, verse 15. But thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now the next one. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Next, the sacrifices, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And now one more, Isaiah 66, 2. For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Now that, that is what Israel was missing in the book of Judges, when over and over again they would say, sorry, sorry, sorry. God would send a judge, they would be delivered, and before long they would go right back into it. I know that in Matthew chapter 18, 22, the Bible says that when I forgive, I'm to forgive 70 times 7. But it presupposes that when somebody repents that, that, that there's a genuineness attached to that. But suppose there's not. And you can't play God. I'm telling you, you can't play with him. You can't, you, can't, you can't trick the system and say, 
I'm going to say, I'm repenting of that God, and then go right back into it and, and have a cycle like, like the Israelites did. What's the word? The word is bokum. And it's in Judges chapter 2 and verse 1. And it was on the occasion where God says, I've, I've had enough. And the Bible describes it this way. He went from, he went from Gilgal, covenant, to Bochum, weeping. You, you need to be a Christian because of the wonderful life afforded to Christians. Even with all the struggles, he will never leave you nor forsake thee. And you, you can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I love being a Christian. I, frankly, I've been a Christian so long, I just cannot imagine choosing anything else. This is what I want to do because I love him. But in fairness, we must also say that you need to be a Christian because God has a point at which he has no more sympathy. He has no more when he will have enough and enough is enough. And eternity is real and hell is real and his wrath is real. It is that wrath that motivates me in addition to these other wonderful things. It is that wrath that I'm aware of and I, I want to walk with him because I understand this part of his character. It is just and it's right and it's real. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.